Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 19, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. We will get further into the matter of inequality in education in the U.S. beyond last week's discussion. Actually, I learned yesterday there is a gentleman who's applied for the USC Public Policy School, and uh, he told me at the Science Policy Symposium yesterday, he said he's withdrawn his application in protest of what's going down at USC. So folks, USC is going to start keep quaking for their massive improprieties. I'm uh, juggling schedules already committed, but I'm going to be bringing on this later on. You're all surely digesting this as you've likely been digesting over the longer while all manner of disparities. College Radio has uh, water to carry on this massive topic, and uh, we've got barrels here on Ask a Leader. Article 5 Convention Watch, 28 states have Article 5 Convention applications. Several states have rescinded their applications. Six Republican-controlled state legislatures without such applications are targets for the convening of overhauling the Constitution. Kentucky, Idaho, Minnesota, Montana, South Carolina, and Virginia. Common Cause is a good resource to follow. Any important developments, maybe they'll join us on the show. I've certainly put in a request. Today, Costa Mesa City Council member Arliss Reynolds will post us on how Costa Mesa is governing. It's, it's fun to watch what government looks like when governing is happening. Attending to their regional share of emergency housing, among other things, done on that council. Then we'll have a look at what's going on at the Laguna Art Museum with their self-help graphics goodies, Victor Viesca, Cal State LA professor of liberal studies, and Marinta Skupin, curator of education at the Laguna Art Museum. We'll be right back after a wee bit of a break. Thank you for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show. Returning to Ask a Leader is Costa Mesa City Council member Arliss Reynolds serving on the council with a women majority, their first Latino members, three council members, 35 and younger, and majority that is for Estancia High School grads. I repeat this because I want for people who just still haven't quite heard what happened in Costa Mesa, it's quite, it's quite the 2018 electoral outcomes. Artis is a product of an upbringing in Costa Mesa and a descendant of extended family deep in public service. I mentioned them when she was on before. We're going to cut right now. Arliss earned her Bachelor's of Science and Engineering degree at MIT, where she moved from robotics to designing efficient buildings. She's a member of the UCI Executive MBA program, studying how tech is transforming in, transforming industries and the global economy. She worked at the Cadmus Group, an employee-owned consulting company where she led engineering research projects specializing in impact evaluation of technologies and strategies. She analyzes clean energy investments and has served as vice chair of Costa Mesa's Park and Recreation Commission. She's been a fixture at forums, rallies, the rubber chicken circuit, you name it, everywhere. Proof of this claim, Arliss presented at the Science Policy Symposium last night at Applied Innovations Cove. If anybody in OC could claim our local version of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Arliss Reynolds is it. She joins me in studio. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Arliss Reynolds. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Good morning. Good morning. Well, at the Science Policy Symposium last night, you mentioned that you've learned how consequential local government is. Tell us what revelations you've had since you were sworn in last December and when there, recently thereafter you were here on this show. Oh, that's quite the question. What revelations in the last three months? <laughs> I think um, uh, one of the things that I've been communicating to a lot of our constituents is, as you mentioned, how influential and powerful local government is and how I really want people to start paying attention to local government because that's where so much change can happen very quickly. 
Um, so you know, we everyone knows who their president is. Um, a lot of a lot of attention is is paid on the congressional races, the Senate races. Uh, but I think people forget that at your local level, there's, um, in our case in Costa Mesa, seven people. So you just need four votes to make a decision. And we're voting on decisions twice every month. And the decisions that we make, because they're local, are things that happen the next day. So some of these big issues, we were talking about climate change and global warming issues and some of the solutions for that last night. Um, issues around electrification of vehicles and infrastructure for active transportation. Those are decisions that your city council is making for people. Not not a lot of staff. There's a lot of opportunity to educate us on issues. And again, we're voting twice a month on consequential things that affect your neighborhoods. And so as you're, this transition I guess it continues to unfold mm-hmm. that you're talking, uh, you also talked last night about changing the culture at City Hall. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could weave in some of the, the climate consequential policies incentives. You said you just by virtue of what directions the city manager has and the appointment of the city manager, mm-hmm. what's an example of that? Because I'm, of course, we're all a little bit concerned about people's understanding of how important our special election for another government, sure. local government position was. Not, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but the turnout was low. It's, it's expected that special elections low. But So what sorts of incentives, what, or what role is the city manager playing that starting to tilt the, the culture away from the way things had been done before. Sure. So there's a couple um, things. We actually don't have a city manager right now, which is an interesting... That changes the culture. <laughs> it's a, It gives us a really good opportunity to change the culture, right? Because we are going to hire a new city manager who... So- all points bulletin out there. I mean, is it? Are you? Is, how how broad is the search for that position? Uh, well, we're we're um, maybe about two thirds through the process. We've closed the application period. But how broad geographically are oh, you? We casting national. It's a search. national search. Yes, okay. Yes. So we hired a um, a recruiter to um, reach out to people that that had specific qualifications. Um, we described sort of the the characteristics or qualities that we wanted in a in a city manager going forward. So what the city manager does in in our form of government in Costa Mesa is really their job is to implement the priorities or the goals that the council shapes. So this new council, um, in January, we had a working session. This would have been after we talked the first time. We right. had a working session to set what those priorities are. And there are some pretty significant differences from previous councils in Costa Mesa. Um, previous councils would have always said fiscal responsibility. I don't disagree with that, of course, but we've reframed that to be fiscal sustainability. And I think there's a really important change with that word um, because we, we wanted to acknowledge that fiscal responsibility is not just about not spending money. It's about spending money the right way, um, looking at sort of the life cycle impacts of decisions and acknowledging that we might invest money in things that will pay back in the long run. Um, Also couched under that fiscal sustainability goal is um, energy efficiency and sustainability. So I expect us, especially as as an engineer focused on um, efficiency and, and sustainability practices, uh, to be looking at opportunities to improve the efficiency of our building, to um, reduce waste, both physical waste and, you know, where, where are we wasting time or where are we doing things that aren't necessarily productive? How are we just as sustainable throughout all of our practices and operations at City Hall? Well, do your colleagues on the council, do they defer to you generously, liberally uh, with your, your engineering portfolio? You know, we haven't gotten to that much detail yet. Okay. Um, I'll say I, I do expect it. And, and very interestingly, there's actually two of us. Uh, Councilmember Andrea Marr is also a mechanical engineer who's focused on energy efficiency. So I expect the two of us to be working together very closely to drive some of the policies based on, you know, best in class research that we know from our professional experience. But a different portfolio than running a pub. <laughs> a different portfolio. <laughs> wow. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is Costa Mesa City Councilwoman, Artis Reynolds, and we're talking about 
how things are changing as recently as everybody's being sworn in, mm -hmm. this brand new council since last December, and there's so much. So incentives and priorities. Well, one that made me really, really want to bring you on the show is what governing looks like when Costa Mesa steps up to the plate. We'll get into some, well, it, it does pertain to sustainability in terms of how your decision is implemented now, that Costa Mesa stepped up with the emergency housing mm -hmm. parts one and two. Talk about mm -hmm. how you set the table with getting every constituent on board that were, that, that were ready to move with you mm -hmm. following what was going on. How did you set that table and then move into those unabashed votes to move on.org with the, I'm, I say that generically, not this proper name, to move on and provide the Costa Mesa share of this emergency housing. Sure. Um, so addressing homelessness was the number one thing residents were asking for in the in the campaign. And it was, it's been by far our, our biggest priority in getting started on the city council. And I think we're all, all seven of us are very proud of the decisions that we've made. This is a process that did start before the new council came on. Um, you know, homelessness has been in front of us for a long time. And, and some actions, a lawsuit that you, you may have talked about on the show, really spurred some kind of more urgent necessity from the, the aspect of, of policymakers. I think this council would have addressed it regardless of that lawsuit. Um, but basically what the decision in front of us was, you know, if, if you can't provide places for people to sleep, then you cannot, you are not allowed to enforce any policies that prevent people from sleeping in public areas. So um, for that reason, and what are some of the numbers? I think there were more than 250 people experiencing homelessness who died on our streets in Orange County this year. You know, that that's an urgent issue that needs to be addressed as well. So we set out right away. Um, we got sworn in, immediately got up to speed on the activities to date in the city on finding some shelter solutions. We ended up basically scrapping the plan that had been developed to date and said we want to go in a different direction. Uh, we didn't like the building that had been chosen. And uh, we are now, let's see, two months later, two weeks away from opening a temporary shelter uh, in my area on 19th Street and Westside Costa Mesa. And we are in the process of acquiring and vetting a property for a permanent shelter um, over near John Wayne Airport. What, that, that shelter will be a brand new structure. It's an existing structure. It, we'll fully renovate it to, um, to to operate as a homeless shelter according to the model that we've we've asked for. Okay. Oh, I was thinking mm -hmm. that because you were talking about meeting certain standards, oh, sustainability yes. standards. That So that right. would be, a, you can retrofit with a, an existing yeah. structure. So, so what we're asking for is, is staff has about an, uh, an, an hour, a year. They probably feel like it'll feel like hour. one. Yeah. <laughs> they have about a year to retrofit that structure. And um, we're going to be asking that not only it be a, a shelter serving homelessness, but a net zero energy shelter. So was part of the the sale of this the particular agendas, initiatives, was it to reframe how everybody, everybody in the city considers that homeless sort of profile? Is that, was that part, I mean, what kinds of, how, break down how you made your case yeah, to the city. Yeah. So, you know, when you're a, a brand new city council member, the first night is very celebratory. Um, you you want to kind of ease into the job a little bit. It was um, it was a bit jarring right away to say really? our, our first vote is going to be, you know, for a homeless shelter in our city. How do we make that a little bit more palatable for residents who may not be um, as educated on the topic of who actually is the homeless population or why this is such an important decision? So, um, um, we set out right away to say, you know what, we want to get ahead of what we expect to be the reaction to um, uh, opening a homeless shelter. And we did a lot of work um, literally knocking on doors and having one-on-one -on -one conversations with residents before we voted on the shelters to try to create that understanding and buy-in. And um, I think it paid off. I described we, we voted for a temporary shelter, and then in our last meeting we voted for a permanent shelter both of those votes came with um, overwhelming support from our constituents and, and even applause. So um, I think that that early engagement and, and honest conversations with people, spending the time to talk about why it's important, why this plan is not just the morally right thing to do, but also the fi financially right, right thing right. to do, um, really paid off. So when successes like this take place, one always wonders, okay, is this moving this as a template to 
other jurisdictions around this very same county. Is your phone ringing off the hook from other cities, or are they just acting like it didn't happen? We uh, we have offered to the um, Irvine City Council members. To, you went to them, or did they share. come to you? Uh, we offered. We reached out. Yeah, okay, but yeah. they're not they're not calling you and say, hey, we we what's in what's your secret sauce or anything like that. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm sort of appalled sometimes uh-huh, when there's not uh-huh. a curiosity about where there's available data mm-hmm. to be used to get something solved. Yeah, yeah. But they're well, not calling. Well, we we didn't give them time to call. We reached out right away. Oh, okay. so I. Uh, How about hope, South County? You know, and I hope that they um, look to what we're doing. We we recognize that you know, of course, we want our solution to be um, successful and effective, and not just because we want to solve this issue in Costa Mesa, but because we wanted to have a model that we can point to and say, hey, this works. Not just in how you get your constituents on board, not just in in what education, what pieces of information are really helpful in influencing people, but you know, what are the most effective operations? Uh, I described in our vote that um, uh, one of the really important measures of success for us is that the neighbors adjacent to the shelters we have become advocates for the shelter because they see how it affected wow. their neighborhoods in a positive way. <laughs> so making the case, what generally Mm-hmm. Maybe or specifically, was it more of a fiscal incentive to constituents, or were you did you find it successful to appeal to the so-called Good Samaritan side of the constituents? Well, um, or was it always a mix? You got oh, a boom, boom, right? There were there were people who were already on board and and saying, you know, just do whatever you need to do to help the people who are living on the streets right now. Those were sort of you know maybe the easiest people to convince. Um, on the other end of the spectrum were people who uh, maybe thought that the best solution was to you know I, I hate to repeat it, but this is what we heard. It has to be repeated. Put, put people on a bus and send them somewhere else, right? So. Um, for a lot of those people, it was hearing the stories of, of who really is our population of people experiencing homelessness now, right? These are not, um, these, they're, you know, they're not all drug addicts and criminals and, and so on, that these are normal people who were, who were unlucky, who many were abused as children, um, who, who maybe grew up in, in homelessness, who were, who were or actually have jobs, but maybe got sick and, and lost their job or their job just doesn't pay enough to afford them a place to live. Um, I don't know, know the numbers off the top of my head, but I remember being appalled hearing about how many Disneyland workers, you know, had full time jobs at Disneyland and it still didn't pay enough to live in Orange County. Right. So so hearing those stories, um, I think, softened people up a little bit. Also, a lot of our homeless population have relationships in Costa Mesa. They are Costa Mesa residents. And so... Um, Telling those stories and sharing that it's, you know, it's the Costa Mesa residents that we want to help get back on their feet in Costa Mesa. Other residents, we want to help get back to their families, help reconnect them with someone who can who can help them get back on their feet in their hometowns. And as the L.A. Times posted that profile earlier in the month with uh, Dylan Ozikan, that he was Mm -hmm. now able to finish high school. And Mm -hmm. so I guess those kinds of profiles give everybody an idea about where. You give somebody a safe place. Right. They're productive. It's it's hard to be angry at a child who is homeless. Unbelievably hard. So with these shelters, as you were saying earlier today and in greater detail yesterday, talk about the what kinds of effic- building efficiencies that you want to use as a model for what civic investments are doing mm-hmm. to us. Uh, provide sustainability examples. Yeah, so we're taking a um, essentially a warehouse building, right? So a building that was designed to, to store product and we're gonna um, use it as a, as a living space, a 24 hour living space. So the, the loads on that building to keep it at a comfortable temperature through the summer and through the winter and laundry every day, there's gonna be a, a kitchen facility there. So the loads on that building are gonna be enormous compared to what it was designed for. Right. So, you know, I think our, our job as city council members is sort of set the expectation for what we wanna see and then our staff are, are charged with how do we execute that. So um, we're, we're setting that goal at uh, a net zero energy building, right? So how can we, we need to make this building very efficient to reduce those loads to be as low as they can be. That's going to require insulation in the building, the you know, most efficient appliances. Um, 
And then, uh, you know, it's, it's going to generate or it's going to require some energy. So we'll talk about putting solar panels on the building to, to generate the energy that the building will consume. I have reached out. We have a, a great contact who's also a Costa Mesa resident, a SoCal Edison um, employee who works on net zero energy construction throughout Orange County. So um, I'm hoping that'll be a nice partnership. It's a very attainable goal. It'll it'll make a great headline, right? This Costa Mesa opens up its its homeless shelter and it's a net zero energy building. We can share that story and we can share the fiscal side of that story again, right? This is, uh, I can't remember what we're estimating the utilities cost will be, but we'll say there are no utility costs because we've re- renovated the building in this way. And to what extent are services that these constituents, these residents are going to need, are they reasonably adjacent to these structures? Um, Were you able to do that? Or is that like another order of complications? You're talking about the network of services? Right. Um, Right. Because I I know that's mm -hmm. a problem. Mm -hmm. That's why Silverado Canyon was a bad idea. How how do people get on to where they need to get services? So some of those services will be in the building. So the buildings that we were choosing, um, that was one of the the really important features is that we're going to have staff on site, um, caseworkers on site to um, to work with people on a daily basis. Uh, This model is, you know, this is not just a place for people to to sleep before they go out and do their jobs or, or chores. There, you're you're basically part of a program when you come into one of our shelters. Every day, you're working towards the next step, which is to find permanent housing. So you have a caseworker, and and again, you're you're working every day. The goal is that you don't spend a lot of time in our shelter because we get you back on your feet that quickly. Wow. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a big network of services in Orange County um, uh, already, and and one of the other pieces we're working hard on, not just for people. Um, experiencing homelessness now, Mm -hmm. but for people maybe on the edge of homelessness, is to try to bring better awareness of all of these services services that are available now. I'm learning every day of a new service I had no idea of. And I think, um, I know that there's a lot of opportunity to actually prevent homelessness if people are more aware of what's out there to help them. Being more proactive. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wanted to find out, um, well, when you're saying you're giving staff an opportunity to you know, put out a goal and have them put something together. Mm-hmm. There's an intangible benefit I'm just fathoming from the new governing. This is what governing looks like, new city council. Mm-hmm. Is anybody mining that intangible benefit of morale changing mm-hmm. with the employees mm-hmm. of the city of Costa Mesa? It's huge, right? Morale, culture, um, uh, how we motivate staff. It's it's hugely important in our ability to get things Is done. somebody watching that, those indicators? I mean, is it, can you just tell? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I used to be able mm-hmm. to tell when I'd see city employees in our, mm-hmm. in our jurisdiction mm-hmm. here, and I'd actually ask them, you know. I, I would sort of, it would be kind of consoling them, and they were they were ready to talk about that. But yeah. but there, it's not hard to find that out. But I just want to know somebody keeping track of that morale indicator of yeah. the city employees. You know, it's funny as an engineer when you say keeping track, I'm immediately thinking of what are the metrics that we're measuring and how are we going to measure that. I don't care if it's anecdotal, Arliss, <laughs> because because we uh, we actually do yeah. want to do um, that type of measurement. Um, you know, it's interesting. This this past weekend, St. Patrick's, um, St. Patty's uh, weekend was uh, the I think this year the eighth anniversary of um, a very 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 serious and consequential um, incident in Costa Mesa, and that was the suicide of a staff member. Um, there was a eight years a, ago was. a memorial um, in front of City Hall uh, every every St. Patty's weekend since that point. And um, I read a a New Yorker article about um, about that incident that I hadn't read before, and it had quotes um, both from staff members and, and the city council members at that time, and it just kind of brought me back to um, a, a milestone that, that created a lot of um, tension that still exists at City Hall um, and among our staff and, and um, issues that uh, maybe demotivated staff or, or have created a, a more tense culture at City Hall. We're working very hard to unravel some of those um, things. And, and we started talking about the city manager. The selection of a city manager will be very deliberate 
in creating a new culture at City Hall that that is motivating, that acknowledges the hard work of staff, that celebrates the achievements of staff, um, that gives staff opportunities to learn and grow professionally. Um, we're working hard on that now. We're, we're very deliberate in thanking staff. Um, it's sort of a running joke that we're thankful, but also probably pushing staff harder than they've ever been pushed um, because we wanted to move so quickly on these homeless solutions. Um, at the priority session that I mentioned we had in January, almost all of our directors were sneezing and coughing, and, and um, it, was, it was actually pretty remarkable. We had to acknowledge how, how much they've been working to get things um, done quickly, and, and we'll, we'll have to, we've been moving at an unsustainable pace for, for very important reasons, and we acknowledge that, but um, we'll, we'll have to slow down a little bit once we get past opening the shelter, uh, talking to staff about how they're doing, you know, again, acknowledging the work that they're doing is, is something very, very important to us. So that makes me think about this a, a way, one way of looking at fiscal responsibility is that intangible value added mm-hmm. of better morale and ownership of the things that they're involved with in governing. Right. So the um, how much did the districts that were created in the city of Costa Mesa, where the council members are voted, does that drive any kind of different kinds of outcomes for how, how you're making your pitch for various policies and how you're engaging your public? Does that help? Yeah, I think it's I think it's huge. The the major decisions that we've made um, to date have been citywide decisions, um, but I do think having district representatives is a is a really important part of that residents in areas that haven't been well represented in the past have commented to me that they feel better knowing that there's someone who knows their neighborhood who's part of that decision making process so even let's just say even if the decisions we are making aren't different than would have made before people feel better knowing that they have a representative sort of like them, you know, or, or who's directly the representing them. Yeah, at the table. Okay. Um, I think that'll come into to play a lot more during the year when we're making neighborhood-specific decisions. Well, now the Board of Supervisors has Don Wagner, the mayor of Irvine, moving into the, the five-member body of government, the Orange County Board of Supervisors. What does any of the what dynamics are in play with what Costa Mesa is trying to get done mm-hmm. and what's sort of the 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 general sort of temperature the the tenor of sure. leadership at sure. the Orange County Board of Supervisors you know it's it's interesting so I'm I'm new to the city council um, in the three months or so that I've been on board um, I've communicated several times with our assembly member um, I've been at roundtables with our congressional members, specifically on environmental issues. They, they, those offices have actually reached out to us to say what's important in your area. Um, I have not heard of any communication with the Board of Supervisors. And oh, so really? I, I think when we're talking about what changes, I think the benchmark is there's no relationship. So, um, of course, you know, because uh, uh, Loretta Sanchez was more in line with some of the values that I have and the interests that I have. I was hoping that she would be elected with um, her not winning that election. I'm not sure it changes anything because I don't think we had much of a relationship to begin with with the Board of Supervisors. Um, With that said, I actually did connect with um, one of the representatives of Michelle Steele's office. Um, One of the things that I want to do is... Which is your district on the uh, board. Yes, yes. Yeah. one of the things I want to do is is work with Newport Beach and Huntington Beach to um, uh, move forward some of these revitalization and restoration projects along the Santa Ana River. So we, we read in the L.A. Times stories about the revitalization of the L.A. River, and I think, gosh, we have the Santa Ana River, which is this amazing corridor, which, you know, uh, checks the active transportation box. It checks the open space and recreation box. It checks the restoration and natural resources preservation box. Um, there are wetlands along the, the river, which are really critical resources for climate adaptation, mitigation and adaptation. So um, there's so much opportunity there to um, create an incredible recess, resource, not just for Costa Mesa, but all the way up the river. And um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to develop a relationship with um, my, my uh, uh, board of supervisor repre- representative to, um, to work on that project. Well, I guess I just want to 
just shoehorn one more in here so that any earnest listeners can see themselves and fo- and sort of channel their energy accordingly. Mm-hmm. So what's the most effective way a constituent can make their case and maintain their impact mm-hmm. following a city council session they appear at? Oh, gosh. You know, you, you gave me this question ahead of time, and I um, I had like 10 Shh. different answers. <laughs> um, and, and I get that question a lot from people. So I think to start is is just have a conversation. Um, we get a lot, a lot of times we hear from constituents, it is, you know, it's it's about a problem they're experiencing and they appro- approach us in an accusational way. So I would say, you know, come, like we are here to serve you. We acknowledge that our job as city council members is to serve our residents. Um, if there's an issue you're experiencing, tell us what that issue is. If you have an idea for a solution, you don't have to, but if you have an idea for a solution, tell us what you might propose could be a solution um, and let's work together to try to fix it. We really, there's nothing more satisfying than solving someone's problems. So, so let us work together to solve those problems. All right. Arliss Reynolds, city council member in Costa Mesa. Thank you for taking the time to be on Ask a Leader today. Thank you. We're going to uh, be right back on Ask a Leader, and we're going to talk about the self-help graphics. Be right back. Thank you, everybody, for staying tuned. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guests are going to be talking about what's available for us all to see at the Laguna Art Museum. My guests are Victor Viesca, Cal State Los Angeles Professor of Liberal Studies, and Marinta Skopin, Curator of Education at the Laguna Art Museum here, as I said, to talk about the current exhibition of selections from the museum's collection of self help graphic silkscreens. First, Victor Viesca is professor and associate chair of liberal studies at California State University, LA. He focuses on the urban culture and art of Los Angeles past and present and has been published in Amerasia, American Quarterly, the Journal for Cultural Research, and edited collections of popular and youth culture. He served as the on-site curator for the exhibition American Sabor, Latinos in U.S. Popular Culture, a Smithsonian Institute Traveling Exhibition. His other exhibition contributions include the creation of L.A. Music History Wall, a film series, a three-day symposium, and a local music concert. He co-curated the art exhibition Entra Tinta y Lucha, 45 Years of Self-Help Graphics and Art, which documents the significant contributions to the fine art of printmaking by the most important Chicana Chicano Art Center in L.A., the oral history video of artists affiliated with Self-Help Graphics and Art, uh, which you can see a bit at Laguna Art Museum on the, a video loop there. He's working on a book project and video oral history on the Chicano movement struggle to free Los Tres del Barrio, an art exhibition on the pioneering of LGBTQ, artist Alex Elferov, an edited collection of essays by the late No Yorokin cultural critic Juan Flores and a study of the East L.A. Cultural Corridor. Dr. Viesca completed his Bachelor's of Arts in English and American Literature from UC San Diego and his M.A. and Ph.D. in American Studies from New York University. My other guest is Marinta Skopin, curator of education at Laguna Art Museum. And as curator there, she oversees the museum's school and public programs, including the annual Art and Nature Festival, outreach programs, and the Laguna Art Museum docent program. So before joining the museum, she was director of education at the San Diego History Center, previously in New Orleans. She was manager of K-12 through and uh, family programs at the Louisiana State Museum, and prior to that, education program coordinator at the New Orleans Museum of Art. A native of South Africa, she studied piano at the University of Stellenbosch, and she has a bachelor's in fine arts and a master's degree in arts administration, both from the University of New Orleans. Victor Viesca comes to us from LA and Marita Scopin from her corner office in Laguna Beach. Welcome to <laughs> Ask a Leader, Victor and Marinta. Thank Hello, you. Thank Hi, you Claudia. Hi, Victor. Thank you. So, welcome. Uh, and 
the, I, I just want to say that I noticed last Saturday in the L.A. Times, self-help graphics is on the map for sure. It was used to locate the nearby Angel City Lumber in Boyle Heights. There's a whole article about Angel City Lumber, and they were helping everybody know where it is because it's a block south of self-help graphics. So I thought, great. So it's placed. It's there positioning everybody. So let's begin. We did have the previous executive director on Ask a Leader. It's got to be at least four or five years ago. Let's go back uh, with Victor talking about what the charter of self-help graphics has been in its political and educational capacities. Just tell us a little bit about that. Well, self-help graphics began in 1970 in a garage in East L.A. and with uh, Sister Karen, a local Catholic nun, uh, wanting to bring uh, art to the community. She was also inspired by the Chicano movement going on there, and she, as a former print artist, uh, believed that you could use art to spread the message of what was going on at the time, Chicano movement, struggle for civil rights. And so out of a garage, she uh, used, borrowed a printing press, and they started screen printing uh, so that they could make art available to the community. Eventually, they moved to a space in Boyle Heights, uh, where they were located for over um, a couple of decades. And recently, they moved to where you're saying, and near the Angel City Lumberyard, uh, at the edge of Boyle Heights, just across the bridge from the Arts District, which is obviously uh, ballooning into a, a major public space of Los Angeles. So they have continued self-help graphics with printmaking, and just recently, uh, as you noted, celebrated their 45th year of working with artists in East Los Angeles, but also throughout California, and uh, they have uh, artists come in from all over the world to make prints for themselves and for uh, the community. When an artist gets to use or make prints at uh, self-help graphics, they usually make about 100 or, or 200 prints of their work, and they get to keep half of them for themselves to, to sell on their own, and self-help graphics keeps a number as well, which then they sell back to the community. So it is one of the longest-lasting Chicano art uh, institutions in the United States and one of the longest uh, art centers in Los Angeles. It's coming up on 50 years in uh, just a couple of years from now. I just want to mention, I always consider part of the, the charter to Victor is that it gives the budding artists in the sort of catchment area of this community center, an opportunity to find their medium there and, and develop as artists, up and coming. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's so many uh, artists in L.A. And in, and in East L.A. who have not had access to mainstream museums. Some, some do have art training, others do not. And Self-Help Graphics has really served as a center for the cultivation of art, not only for the community, but the cultivation of artists. So for, for many uh, new artists who are painters, sometimes they're graffiti writers, they, they've been introduced to printmaking. Also, though, several veteran uh, Chicano artists like Wayne Healy, for example, who's a, a major muralist uh, uh, in Los Angeles, was introduced to printmaking at Self-Help Graphics. Wow. And he's produced a number of beautiful prints I'm not sure if Laguna Art Museum has it in its collection, but he, he and, and of course, Frank Romero, who's also a well-known yes. muralist in Los Angeles, just had a major exhibition at the Long Beach Museum of Latin uh, American Art, were introduced to printmaking at Self-Help Graphics. So it served to cultivate young artists, but also served veteran artists and introduced them to printmaking. That's right. And one more thing about the community center performing, I believe that is where the Day of the Dead celebration may have been institutionalized with Self-Help Graphics launching that annual event on their premises. Yes, it's, it's really amazing to see uh, the Day of the Dead, a celebration of uh, Mexico and southern Mexico, be filmed here in, uh, by Disney uh, through the film Coco. Um, spreading it throughout the United States so that now that holiday, which uh, is a Mexican holiday but was practiced at self-help graphics since the early 1970s, 
is now part of American culture through animation. So, yeah, self-help graphics uh, was one of the first cultural institutions to practice that Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos, which uh, takes place on November 1st and 2nd after Halloween, was one of the first places to celebrate it publicly uh, in the early 1970s. They used to have an event where they would from the original uh, self-help graphics building in uh, Bow Heights, they used to have a parade from Evergreen Cemetery, which is a local cemetery. It's uh, one of the best-known cemeteries in Los Angeles because it was a multiracial uh, oh. cemetery while other cemeteries around Los Angeles were segregated. And so they used to go from uh, Evergreen Cemetery to self-help graphics, and that's where you would see... Uh, some of the uh, uh, artists or local community dress up uh, for the event in the uh, skull figures or calacas, which uh, Day of the Dead is famous for. Yes. In the movie Coco, uh, I think they were also represented as skeletons and skulls. And so uh, they celebrated for several years that way, traveling from Evergreen Cemetery to self Graphics in celebration of those who have passed away rather than mourning. Uh, them celebrating them, um, and now uh, it's one of the major uh, events that self-help graphics hold. While while initially it was only a few dozen people who participated in the early 1970s, the recent shows have gathered thousands of uh, people, especially residents from uh, East Los Angeles. On that day, they have not only a, a gallery show; they do a print run uh, of posters. Uh, advertising the event, but they also have a uh, music concert as well. So now it's a it's a major event in uh, Los Angeles on the Day of the Dead, November first and second every year. You can go check it out. They celebrate it now across the street from where they're at now at so, the local high school. Um, I want to bring in Marina here. Um, I, for those of you who've just joined us here on Ask Leader KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, my guests are Victor Viesca. You're hearing him. He's the Cal State Los Angeles professor of liberal studies. And we're just going to talk now with Marinta Skupin. She's curator of education and Laguna Art Museum, talking about the self-help graphic silk screens that are a part of the Laguna Art Museum's collection. So talk to us about what you decided to select, what kind of feeling you were trying to bring out for patrons coming to the Lagoon Art Museum, Marinta. Hi, Claudia. We're so excited and so so honored to have this exhibition. As you and Victor have said, these prints are part of our permanent collection, um, but it's wonderful and very frequently we exhibit parts of our permanent collection. Yes. Not, not everything is on view at, at any one time, obviously. So this is the first time since I've been here, probably the first time in the, in the last few years, that these um, prints from self-help graphics are exhibited at a as a group. Our director, Malcolm Warner, curated the exhibition oh, he and did. selected the prints. He did. Um, and I talked to him about his reasons, and he, and he basically said... It, it was not very scientific, but uh, he, he went for the best things and maybe with a little bias to some famous names like Magoo, Frank Romero, Patsy Valdez. Uh, but some themes emerged. Um, some of them are Los Angeles, the desert, lowrider culture, signs and symbols. And um, as always with exhibitions, you, you pick something that, that works well in the gallery. And, and right. I think these 16 colorful prints just look beautiful in, in our upper-level gallery. They are exquisite. I don't mind not being a, a, a neutral about this. That I know uh, we've um, people laugh at radio getting visual, but we, we do it all the time on Ask a Leader. So if you'd like to bring out any highlights, I could steer you maybe to, for example, Alfredo de Batuc. Is that correct? Batuc? Yeah. As far as I know, is that correct, oh, Victor? Yeah. Victor? Okay. Yeah. Seven views of City Hall. It, that is so the the self-help graphics vibe. Can you, either one, M M Marita, you could talk about what Alfredo is bringing across there, Mr. Mister de Batuc to me. <laughs> what we know about um, um, Alfredo de Batuc, his, his work is often layered in visual and allegorical complexity uh, with these different layers of culture and uh, of colors, I mean, and a rich surface with philosophical, political, spiritual erotic symbolism. Um, so with this one, the city of Los Angeles is an important motive in his work also, and it's a recurrent subject 
in his paintings, and this is a perfect example of it. And so there's... Uh, yes, Victor. Uh, yes, uh, so it has uh, seven uh, images of City Hall with one uh, in the center that uh, is, might be familiar to uh, those of Mexican descent because it looks like, oh, well, actually, anyone from Los Angeles. Anyone, even Orange County people. I think I got it. <laughs> yeah, uh, Orange County. Uh, the Virgen de Guadalupe, the patron saint of Mexico, yes. uh, the Virgin Mary, but the, the brown Virgin Mary, uh, uh, who's ubiquitous in murals all over Los Angeles, maybe Orange County as well. She's a symbol not only of the Catholic Church, but of Mexican uh, and Mexican-American identity. So you can see that. Alfredo is playing with that image, but rather than the Virgen de Guadalupe at the center, it's actually City Hall. The, the building structure. It's, it's amazing. And each one of the views has, and that, that's the allegory that you both speak of, there is a, it's mainly an, it's an animal represented at the base of the City Hall. It's just loaded. Right. There's several um, great artists exhibited there. As Marita was saying, uh, yes. uh, there's a couple of pieces by Patsy Valdez, the um, Two there. Yeah. famous uh, Chicana feminist artist, pieces by Frank Romero, the muralist, yes. whose murals are right on the 101 freeway. It's really great. Uh, it's, it, those are, are really gems from the collection. I haven't seen the whole collection that the Luna Art Museum has, but these are really great pieces. And Marinja, is this the first time that the, these pieces have been on exhibit since maybe the early 90s when the, the collection was put together? As a group that forms um, um, an exhibition, yes. Um, we often have selections from our permanent collection, and uh, various of them have often been featured as part of another exhibition. But as a group, the last big exhibition we had was in 1995. It was called Across the Street, and that was just three years after we acquired the whole collection. Um, so this is, this is special for us. I, yes. I, I don't know if you're familiar or our, our audience is familiar, but the focus area of Laguna Art Museum is California art. We collect an exhibition all of California art, so starting from when we became a state or even a few years prior, and only California art. And obviously Chicano art is a, is a big section of that. So um, it's wonderful to have this exhibition. And we have a number of, I'm responsible for, for programming here at the museum. We have a number of programs lined up with the exhibition about which we're very excited. So we've talked about some of the pieces. Maybe you could uh, speak specifically also to I'm not, I'm not sure. Malakias Montoya, si si puede. Uh, yes. Could you talk to that one, Victor? My Marita too. Uh, yes, uh, Malakias Montoya uh, has a piece in the show. He is an artist from San Jose. Was raised by farm workers uh, there, and he has a piece in the show that's uh, sort of like a, a representation of the marginalized and the poor surviving through, uh, as he says, the oppression in America. So he has a, a, a maguey plant sort of shred, uh, going through an American flag. Uh, uh, Malakias Motoya, he's been a, an activist and an artist. He believes he should use art for social change. Uh, so he's uh, from San Jose, but he came down to Los Angeles to produce prints at Self-Help Graphics. Wow. Uh, Self-Help Graphics is a very well-known Chicano art center for Chicano artists all over the United States, as I mentioned, but also for, for artists who consider art not only for representation or decoration, but also for uh, protest and social change as well. So, so yes, it's a very interesting piece, especially with the politics of the border wall taking place now, to see this representation of the border fence on this print, which was produced, I think, in the 1980s. And for yep. those who may not know, oh, yes, Marinta, excuse me. No, I, I, I just said uh, Victor is correct. It's absolutely uh, 1989 is the date of the piece, yeah. And yeah. for those who don't know exactly that plan, I mean, they're like, they're, they're sharp kind of, uh, not the spikes, but they're sharp ends that are spiking their way through the Amer piercing the American flag. It's really, it's, I, and I haven't, I don't remember seeing his work anywhere before. So it was, it brings a lot to the patrons that come to the Laguna Art Museum there. So this is going to be going on until 
May 27th. So why don't either one of you talk about some special events? I know Victor is going to be uh, holding court on May 23rd, but tell us about any other special events wrapped around this wonderful exhibit from Self Help Graphics. Certainly, yeah. Thank you so much in advance, Victor. Victor is going to give a talk here oh. on May the 23rd, Thursday evening. Victor created an oral history that's actually part of the exhibition, as you mentioned in the beginning, Claudia. But before that, um, April 27th, on a Saturday, we have a big family festival. It's an Orange County-wide series of festivals called Imagination Celebration, and we dedicated a big part of our activities uh, for this year's uh, to be inspired by the Chicano artists. So, for example, self-help graphic um, launched an outreach program called Barrio Mobile Art Studio, and they're going to be here right at the museum, wow. um, giving a workshop with silk screen and, and stencils, various printmaking techniques. We'll also have another group from Los Angeles called Art Division. They were founded by Dan McCleary, an artist that we often work with, and serving young adults, 18 to 26-year-old uh, and one of their projects is to teach students in printmaking techniques and then send them out into the community. They'll be conducting a printmaking workshop here as well. What time? So, what hours? Because we we're actually there's a, a STEAM conference for girls sponsored. It'll, mm. it'll break up uh, at about 1230 on April 27th. We talked about that last week on this show. So can they get over to then Lagoon Art Museum after they're done here? <laughs> well, Claudia, we timed it just perfectly. Oh, Our <laughs> festival is from 1 to 4, and it's completely free admission. We open the doors for everyone on that day. So 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock, and that will be perfect timing. Okay. Well, believe me, it'll be shared uh, with all parties. You're all overlapping your Venn diagrams of your target parties. So that's, that's, a, I didn't even know we were going to get to that. Getting a lot done. So then, Victor, here's a chance you could plug with like half a minute remaining here. With what we could look out for at the self-help graphics, because I, I know there's some sort of a paper fashion show coming up, but there's, there's, there's always something really cool going on there. Really quick. Well, right now there's an exhibit uh, called uh, Mujeres de Maíz celebrating uh, Women's uh, International Day and Month of a lot of uh, women of color artists. So they have a show up right now. And, yes, there's a paper fashion show coming up, uh, which is going to have some major fashion designers and local designers uh, having a runway show uh, to benefit self-help graphics okay. as well. And I, I really hope everyone gets out to Laguna Art Museum. It's a gem in Laguna Beach. Uh, we're very happy that they're supporting art from East Los Angeles and self-help graphics. Well, and I hope that we can, it ends, as I said, on May 27th. I hope that we'll have opportunities to see these return from time to time down here because uh, Orange County has to celebrate that. It's exquisite. It's just, it's yeah. so vibrant. So, well, I want to thank both of you for being on Ask a Leader today. My guests were Marinta Skupin, curator of education at the Laguna Art Museum, and Victor Hugo Viesca, Cal State LA professor. Thank you so much for both of you being on the show today. Thank you for having us. So I'm going to bring up what we're going to do next week. Aziza Hazan, executive director of New Ground, a Muslim Jewish partnership for change. It's been a bit going on the last quarter year, leading right through last Friday. We're going to give her the full hour. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.